All right, you guys stand up real quick. Stretch if you need to. Do some twists here. It's a little warm in the room. Some of you had that volunteer breakfast about an hour ago. Anybody need to go get some water or coffee? Go get water or coffee right now, real quick, and we're going to get into probably the last 20 minutes of being in the Word. If, you've, if your kids, you guys are going to come over to this table over here. Miss Meg is going to be over there with you guys. Here's what I want you guys to do, kiddos, on this table. All right. Come on over, come on over. All right, we're going to practice listening to the Lord as we're drawing, as we're coloring. We're going to pray and ask God to show us things and to show us his heart, show us who he wants to minister to or what he wants to do, and we can draw that out, guys. So all of you little ones at this table, any of us can hear God's voice, not just the big grown-ups. And you guys have a great chance to kind of express that out with uh, some of the crayons in the paper there. So if you hear God say something or if you want to draw it out and you want to come share it with me at the end of the service, we'll share that with, uh, with the church as well, all right? And Miss Meg will give some guidance over there. Okay. Hey, we're going to jump into Acts chapter, Acts chapter 3 this morning. We're three weeks into a series called The Power of Pentecost, taking a look at what does it really mean uh, when, when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost um, and what does that mean for you and I and every day and, and, and as we're following Jesus every day? There's a lot of baggage that comes along with the word Pentecost, unfortunately. Some of us associate it with a, with a you know, particular religious tradition, you know, um, and, and um, some of us are very comfortable with what it means and have an understanding of, 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 of what it means biblically. And others, this may be a new idea. So we just kind of want to go back to the book of Acts and look and see talk about what did this mean for this young uh, movement of Jesus followers who are filled with the Holy Spirit as they kind of went out their way. So we, 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 we're looking at sort of four different aspects that we are empowered to, to live out. And the first of those was the power to speak, the power to preach, the power to proclaim. And we see that right away in Acts 2, where as soon as they come out of the upper room and they're filled with the Spirit, they begin to, Peter begins to preach boldly and with power. And the people that hear it are just cut to the heart, and they're responding in incredible ways. That was the first week. Last week, we take a look at something called the power to share, uh, and it's this supernatural ability that, that God gives us, really, to, to share our lives and our hearts and our resources with those around us, you know, and that, that's an important part of it, too, is, is how God changes our relationships once we are walking in the Holy Spirit. He kind of changes our, 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 our relationships with one another. We're going to look um, this week at the power to heal from Acts chapter 3, the power to heal. Um, I've got this word. I think I want to read this at the end, though. So let's go ahead and flip to Acts 3. There's Bibles on the edges, on the ends of the, the rows there. If you need one of those, like a hard copy of a Bible, I want to encourage you to do that. I encourage you to, to bring your own Bible every week and to get in the habit of seeing that and allowing your, your family and your kids to see you studying the actual pages. It's something beautiful about that. But we also have it up here on the screen behind us. By the way, there are 21 references. And when we talk about the power to heal, we're talking sort of just supernatural miracles in general. Um, but we, we're kind of going to zero a little bit in on, on the healing part. But there are 21 references or instances of miracles in the book of Acts. 
seems like almost one per chapter. And we know, so that tells us that the supernatural things are part and parcel of this early church and what this new church and what they want and what God was doing through them. So it, was, it wasn't just kind of one-time thing to get everybody's attention. It didn't just happen once. It happened again and again and again and again, 21 times. And it's been happening, honestly, all through church history. It's even been happening today all around the world. There are supernatural things happening um, in, increasing, um, in increasing frequency. And we're, we're seeing it. Uh, many of you have seen those things. Many, of, um, you know, many in King's Church, we've seen some of the, the, these things happening. Um, let me read this in, verse, in, in chapter 2, verse 43. It says this, or verse 42 and 43 of chapter 2. It says, They, they being the believers, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Verse 43, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And frequently, the, the, the writers of the Bible call these things signs, wonder, signs and wonders. Even Jesus talked about signs. Um, you know, he said, these signs will follow those who believe. And there's something about what does a sign do? A sign points you to something else. If you're driving down the road and you see a sign here that says, you know, exit this way for whatever else, that tells you which way to, it's pointing to something else. The point of a sign is not itself. You don't go and look at this sign and say, oh, how beautiful it is. It has nice, it's square, and it has nice rounded corners, and, you know, it, it's pointing to something else. The same is true in God's Word. Signs are always pointing us to something else. And in this case, the, the wonders and the signs are pointing us to the, to the power and the authority of Jesus himself. Because the Gospels were proclaiming this. They were proclaiming Christ crucified and resurrected. And then they were doing these signs to point back to the truthfulness of this. So that's, this is part of our theology of signs and wonders. Our theology of healing is that it always needs to redirect somebody back to the author of that miracle. The source of that healing. The source of the, these, this deliverance always points back to Jesus. If we practice healing and practice supernatural things, but we never sort of match that with, with proclaiming what this is about, then we're doing a disservice to people. These are signs and wonders, always meant to point, to point us back to the truthfulness of what, Jesus, um, of what Jesus said. By the way, let me say this. Performing miracles is part of the call to be a disciple. Performing miracles... Doing signs and wonders is part of the discipleship call. So I want you to think that through, all right? That doesn't necessarily mean that everybody might sort of have, you know, big signs and wonder kind of gifts. There's all kinds of different signs and wonders, but it's clear that when Jesus delegates his authority to be a disciple, this is also included in that. And if you and I are called to be disciples, then the authority to be channels of supernatural power belong to you and to I, without condition. I want to say it again because I believe it. If you are a follower, if you are a disciple of Jesus, his authority to do miracles has also been given to you. Now, some of you are thinking, well, what does that mean? I don't you know, I don't have this gift or that gift or this gift. Okay, that's fine. I get it. I understand. Sometimes there, there are supernatural gifts. There are supernatural things that God has empowered certain people to do. But specifically healing, when God commands the, his disciples to go out and to heal the sick, he doesn't say, those of you that have this gift or that gift, go out and do it. 
he commands all of his followers, 72, go out in pairs, proclaim the, king, proclaim the kingdom, heal the sick, cast out demons. So that is part of the call of being a disciple is that everybody is engaged in this kind of work. So there's a mandate for miracles. More accurately, walking in power and authority are part of the privilege of every believer. You have the privilege of You have the privilege to walk in power and authority. You have the privilege to lay hands in faith and see healings happen. Every single time? No, I'm not telling you that. But you have the privilege to exercise your authority and pray for healing. And I believe that we can see it happen. And by the way, notice what what Jesus never says. He never says, go out and do miracles. He doesn't say that. He does say, go out and live out the reality of the kingdom. And as you're doing this, you're going to see these things happening. And there's there's a little bit of a a focus there that I don't want us to get off. I don't want you to hear from me, go out and do miracles. Go do miracles. We can't do that on our own. We can't do it. What we can do is we can live out the reality of the kingdom day by day, and then we're going to see things happening. We're going to see beautiful, sort of subtle things happening that are miracles in themselves. You know, we're going to see hearts softened and transformed. That's a miracle too. All right, we're going to see healings happen, sort of uh, through through a process. That's a, that's a miracle as well. We're going to see people uh, set free from things through slowly through influence and through through um, you know through the different channels that, that God has put in place. All of these are smaller areas of miracles too. But we're also going to see some big stuff. We're going to see people delivered in a moment. We're going to see healings happen in a moment. But at no point does, do, do we do we say go out and do miracles. What we do say is go out and live the kingdom day by day. Live in the authority and the power of Jesus. So in the text, I want us to look at two things. We're going to look at two stories of healing, the very first one and the very last one in the book. It's going to be like our bookends, you know? Like the very first one that's recorded here in Acts chapter 3, and then we're going to look at the very last one at the very end of the book and just sort of, you know, look at these together. I don't know why we're doing that. It felt like God said, look at these two things and see how different they are and see how the same they are. So let's read this one in Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now, Peter and John, Acts 3, verse 1. Now, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. By the way, notice that it doesn't say they were out looking for miracles to do. You know, they weren't out like on a miracle hunt. They were just doing their normal disciple. They were going to the temple at the time for a prayer meeting. They've been doing this every single day. They've been doing this, you know, frequently. This is their habit. This is their spiritual habit that they're in. They They weren't out hunting people you know, to do signs and wonders. They were just following what the Lord was saying to do in, in this spiritual discipline. At the, uh, verse 2, And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. So this guy's been there every day. That's what they do. His friends come in. They lay him there. We know later on the Bible tells us that he has been, he's been in this condition for 40 years. And undoubtedly, Peter and John would have been familiar and would have seen him at this place in the past. Why didn't they heal him in the past? The Bible doesn't tell us why. But they would have seen. They would have gone on his way. It's possible that even Jesus at some point would have been familiar with this particular one laying there. But he sees Peter and John, and he asks to receive alms. He holds out his hand or his cup or whatever he has there. Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John. That's interesting, to, to, to those words. Peter looked intently at him, as did John, and said, look at us. 
And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. You know, so it's, it's the, the, the beggar. He's like he's down or he's sitting or whatever, and his, just his eyes are downcast, not, not making eye contact with people. Maybe there's too much shame. Maybe there's too much rejection. We don't know, but he's not looking until Peter and John say, look at us. He looks up his eyes. He's like, ooh, all right. I want to get some money this time. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. So there's the sign that's pointing to the reality of Jesus Christ. He took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. What I find also interesting is that although Peter said to him, rise up and walk, Peter also bent down and took him by the arm and helped him stand up. There's something beautiful about that as well. Part of, part of the healing process is sometimes us helping people to walk this out, helping people to live this out. So he leaps up, stands, begins to walk, enters the temple. All the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. And that's, that's, the, that's the natural consequence of signs and wonders. That's why they're called wonders. Because <laughs> you look at it and say, well, that's incredible. That, how did this happen, right? We've known this guy. He's been sitting here for 40 years. And, you know, day after day after day, this is not like a, it wasn't like a leg cramp, you know, that incapacitated him for a day. And then all of a sudden it felt better. This guy's been like permanently disabled sitting here. And all of a sudden he is standing up. They knew him by name, probably had family somewhere around there, and he's standing up and he's running and leaping and shouting, and the people are just astonished at what has happened. And the story goes on, Peter and James are, you know, they're, Peter and John, they're, they're, they're in trouble now because they're, you know, disrupting the status quo and making a scene, they're dragged in before the authorities, and all kinds of other stuff happens, and that's, that's next week. Next week is the power to suffer, that's part of it as well. Right? You know? So we got the power to do signs and wonders. We also got the power to endure some difficult things. But here's, here's what I want you to pay attention to. It's as they're going about their business that a miracle happens. As they're walking and just doing what God has called them to do, God is bringing divine encounters their way. And they're simply, they're, they're, they're just in a ready position to say yes. Their eyes are open. They're aware of what's happening here. So that's the first one. That's like the big one that we've all heard about. Flip to the very end of the book in Acts chapter 28. Acts chapter 28. This saga is almost over, at least in terms of the recorded history. So now it's no longer Peter. Peter's gone on doing other things. Now there's a guy named Paul. You know Paul's story. Paul was a, a zealous Pharisee who was hunting down Christians, kicking them in the teeth, dragging them off to jail. God gets a hold of him on this place called Damascus Road. God speaks to him. God has this radical conversion. He has this radical conversion, and then he just becomes this apostle, this, this minister, missionary to Asia and to Europe, and he's just on this track of incredible things, writing letters, so many of which are found in the New Testament. But here we are at the end of the story in Acts 28. Let me read, and it's so unusual, by the way. It's just like totally different than what we just read, but it's the same. Verse 28, uh, chapter 28, verse 1. After we were brought safely through, we then learned that the island was called Malta. The native people showed us unusual kindness, for they kindled a fire and welcomed us all because it had began to rain and was cold. 
When Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and put them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened on his hand. Anybody been bit by a snake before? Praise God for that. A snake comes out and bites him on the hand. The native people saw the creature hanging from his hand. Listen to this. They said to one another, no doubt this man is a murderer. He, though he has escaped from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. So they are superstitious people. They sure they believing in karma and fate and all this stuff. So they just assume that if anything freak, like some freak accident like this happened, it's probably karma coming back to pay him back for something bad that he did. So they see this snake bite him and you know, hanging there. And they're thinking, okay, well, well clearly this guy's done something wrong. He's going to get what he deserves. He's going to drop dead any minute now. Verse 5, he, Paul, however, shook off the creature into the fire and suffered no harm. I want to I see this, right? I'm thinking if, if this were me and I'm bitten by a snake, I'm like running around and screaming like a little girl. I'm like finding the nearest doctor and like bandaging up my hand and I'm, you know, feeling faint. I gotta lay down, somebody bring me some water, somebody bring me coffee, do something else. But Paul is like such a man. He's just, he's just so, he's just so, he just like he looks at the snake and just like shakes it off into the fire. He's like, get off. Like it's like more of annoyance than anything. It doesn't seem like he's, the Bible doesn't tell us that he's really phased by any of this. Suffered no harm. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. They're looking for, they're waiting for this to happen. They're waiting for him just to collapse over and to die. They're like, okay, any minute now. This guy's going to go into anaphylactic shock. He's going to turn purple. He's going to fall over, and they're watching, and nothing is happening. And Paul is going about his way. He's adding stuff to the fire, looking around like, what, what are you guys doing? What's going on? doesn't seem phased by it at all. They were waiting for him to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But when, <laughs> excuse me, when they had waited a long time and saw no misfortune come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. So from one extreme to the other, Either this guy is like the enemy of the gods who's about to be struck down, or he is divine himself. So they changed their mind. Okay, well, clearly this is somebody that's, you know, divine himself. Verse 7, now in the neighborhood of that place, I think that, by the way, that really strange episode, I believe, lays a foundation for what we're about to read right here. Because it gives a glimpse as to the authority that Paul possesses within himself and the power that he has within himself. There's no preaching that happens here. Nobody is healed. You know, no evangelism whatsoever. It's just this freak of nature where Paul is not, though, under the curse of nature. Paul has supernatural power. Now, in the neighborhood of that place were lands belonging to the chief man of the island named Publius, who received us and entertained us hospitably for three days. It happened that the father of Publius lay sick with fever and dysentery. And Paul visited him and prayed, and putting his hands on him, healed them. So there's the chief of the island. The chief of the island has a father who's sick. He's been sick for three days. They tell Paul, Paul, wants to, Paul comes on in. Paul lays hands on him, and he's healed right away. When this had taken place, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases also came and were cured. Isn't that beautiful? The entire island, all of their sick come. Word gets out about this power that this man Paul has. And they come and they bring their sick and they lay, him, they lay them down. So this is a lot different than the first, but some things are the same. There's a willingness on both parts. There's a willingness to just be about kingdom business. 
going to prayer or going on a mission, whatever it is. They both are in postures of following where God is calling them to go. There's intentionality. There's faith on both hand, on, on both places to lay hands on and to pray. And there's an expansion of the gospel in both. And that's, I think that's the important thing to remember is that anytime you see, you see these miracles, there's going to be an expansion, a kingdom expansion of what's going on. That's the, that's the purpose that's, that, that, that signs and wonders play. So those are our two texts. Let me give you just real quick some, some whys of healing. Why do we believe in healing? Why do we practice healing? Why does, why does the Spirit want to do healing through his church today? First of all is this. I think it shows the Father's heart to the world. Right away it shows that the Father has a heart of compassion to the lost. And the, and the world needs to see this. They need to know that they are broken and sick and that they have a Father who loves them deeply. So that's our first, that's our first motivation. You know, that's one, of, that's, that's one of the first things that we do is when we pray, we are showing the Father's love to people. We don't, the Father doesn't want people to suffer. He doesn't want people to be broken and sick all, all the time. He is, his heart is for healing. We know this. God does not have a heart that is for suffering. He has a heart that's for healing. So when we, the, the why of healing is that it shows the Father's heart. So we, we want to let compassion sort of push everything that we do. Here's the second thing is, it gives proof to our proclamation. That, that's another why, is it proves what we're trying to say. And this is a beautiful thing, and there's so many testimonies of this. You guys have so many testimonies as well. Um, but, but, but we practice healing because it, it validates what we are saying about Jesus. When we say that Jesus has the power over life and death, many people just hear that as words. But what if they could see it in action? What if they themselves could experience the power of God in action? They're going to give pause. They're going to give consideration. Not always. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes it feels like a healing might be wasted on someone, right? You ever, you ever known somebody that was healed and just still just did not yield their hearts back to Jesus? Honestly, that's just part of the lavish grace of the kingdom. Jesus heals anyway, even if he knows that person is just not going to follow after him because he has a heart of compassion, he has a heart of love, and it still, it still validates his proclamation. And then the third, the third why, the third reason that we practice healing is because it, it, um, it enacts the kingdom. It advances the kingdom. And we, we're King's Church. This is what we're all about right here. Our mission is to honor Jesus Christ, the King, and to expand. That's what we want to do. We want to expand his kingdom. How do we do that? You know, we don't believe in socio-political kingdoms. We're not raising up physical armies to invade countries and set up governments. That's not the kind of kingdom we're talking about. His kingdom is a spiritual kingdom. But healing is one way, and miracles are one way, that we, we enact the kingdom. We, we push the kingdom of darkness backwards, and we gain more ground for the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Because his kingdom is one where, where, where healings happen and where miracles happen. So it shows the Father's love, it gives proof, proof to our proclamation, and it, it enacts the kingdom or it ministers the kingdom. Let me close with this. This is, this is a quick one too, just like last week. You guys get off easy. All right. Okay. I, I, so I'm reading a book by Alexander Venter. It's called Doing Healing. It's, it's a great book. It's, it's pretty thick and it's very dense, but I want to give you like just 
a takeaway from it that he wrote. So this is not from me, this, but this is from him, but I think it's, it's straight up, I really like this. And he talks about the secret, the four key factors of healing, the four key factors of um, the four secrets, so to speak, to healing. And they all start with C, so it's really easy to remember. But the first one he says is communion. That's the first factor. And what he doesn't mean is the bread and the grape juice. He's not saying that if you come up and you take communion, then you have this mystical gift. What he means by that is that communion simply means oneness or intimacy or closeness to God. That's what communion really means. And what, what, what Venter's saying, I think he's exactly right, is that the, the, the indwelling of God's presence is the most important factor in bringing the gift of healing into the world. Because this, this, is, this is how Jesus did his miracles as well. He walked in intimacy with the Father so deeply, so powerfully. There was communion that was there. The indwelling of God's presence is the most important factor. If you want to, if you want to grow in this gift, if you want to grow in the gift of healing, if you want to grow in miracles and, and supernatural things, you know, there's a thousand conferences, there's a thousand books to read. Those are all fine and great. But there's nothing better than just learning to be in deeply in the presence of God. If you are in communion with him, the overflow of that is going to be his authority and his power. So communion is the first one. That's the fact of oneness, the fact. Then there's the faith of oneness. We call this conviction. In other words, it's not just being in God's presence, but it's an inward revelation of God's thought. So once we are in his presence, once I'm with the Father, once I'm spending time with the Father, not only do I have communion with him, but I also have a conviction of what the Father wants to do. And I just begin to discover this in the last few years. It's like, you know what the secret to healing is? The secret to healing is just knowing what God wants to do in a particular situation and being willing to, to do it. But so many of us are, so many of us just, we, you know, in, in God's church, we just, we don't get to that point. We don't know what God's thoughts are. We don't have a revelation of what God's thoughts are. But if we're in his presence and we're, 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 we're with him, we're walking with him in intimacy and we're, 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 his, his thoughts become our thoughts, his mind becomes our mind, the things that he wants to do become impressed on our heart and it becomes very clear in, in situations, this is what the father wants to do. This is how the father wants to respond to this need or to that need or to this thing as well. And then that leads to the third C, command. This is the flow of oneness. We speak God's words. We're with the Father in intimacy. We, 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 we know we have a conviction as to what he wants to do. Now we just command. We just speak it out. We speak out what the Father wants to do. This is what Jesus did. Jesus talks about that. He says, I can do nothing apart from the Father. He says that about himself. He says, I only do, I only do talk, Jesus talking about himself, I only do what I see the Father doing. So if, if that's true for Jesus, how much true is it going to be for us? Even Jesus didn't go around thinking, I wonder who I can heal today. You know, he, he, he didn't kind of go out just sort of scratching his head saying, oh, my, 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 my miracle quota, getting kind of low, I better do some. He just, he was in, so he's in tune with the Father. And he knows that the Father wants to do that miracle, and he wants to do this healing, and he wants to do this and cast out this demon. So Jesus just goes, the Father's over here, so I want to go over here. And he begins to speak out and command with the authority of the Father. And the final thing is, the fruit of oneness, of course, is the manifestation of God's works. This is the creation. We have communion, that's first, that's the foundation, we're, in, in, we're with the Father in intimacy. We have conviction, we know the Father's heart, we know what he wants to do. We practice that, we speak out a command of healing or whatever that is, 
And then we're going to see the creation of this. We're going to see the, the, the manifestation of this word coming alive. So communion, conviction, command, creation. Write those down. I know I flew through them very quickly, but I think it's an incredible foundation to lay on, uh, to, to build on. So here's what we're going to do. I know, I know that, was, that was quite quick, and there's a lot more teaching to do on, on healing, and we're going to in the months to come. We're going to circle back to this and spend a lot more time because this is integral to who we are as a church, learning, learning to walk in power gifts, learning to walk in power evangelism. And I know that some of you have, have prayed. Real quick, raise a show of hands. How many of you have prayed for someone for supernatural healing and seen it? All right, that's like a third or half of our church. How many of you want to see that? All right, over kids over here. That's awesome, you guys. You know what, guys over here at the table? Look at me. Look at me. You guys can see supernatural healing too. God, God never says it's just for grown-ups. In fact, sometimes you have an easier time than we do, right? So we're, we want to be the kind of church that practices it, that lives this out, that, that carries this anointing for, for seeing healing. So here's what we're going to do. Um, we've got some words of knowledge that I want to read. And kids, if um, Miss Meg, help me out over there. You can kind of see if some of the kids want to come up and do some prayer for this as well. Um, I want to I do two things. I want to read some, some words of knowledge about some, some specific needs maybe that the Lord wants to heal. And if some of those words hit you with the condition that you have or someone that you're close to, we want to pray over those. Um, but I also just want to, I, I think the Spirit just wants to release sort of a, a general anointing for healing in our body. And especially for those of you that have never done it before. I believe that today God wants to 